Hi, I'm Jeremy Ullman, graduate researcher at Concordia University, and this is Abstract, a podcast where I'll be interviewing graduate students to learn about their research in a way that makes it accessible, bringing into the discussion aspects that are fun but challenging, covering a day in the life, and also just throwing around cool theories and groundbreaking findings that they've come across in their readings. My goal here is to tap into the wealth of information swirling around graduate students' minds, culminating from months to even years of research and reading. We're going to harness that knowledge together, one episode at a time. On today's episode, you can expect to learn a little bit about how we manipulate genes using light in rats, what surprise does to dopamine signaling in the brain, what dopamine is and what serotonin is in terms of being neurotransmitters, what are the benefits of studying rats, and how Alexandra, our guest today, reads a dense and lengthy research paper. We also discuss the application of what are called plateau or radical curves, which crop up all over the natural world. And we even have time to talk a little bit about exposure therapy. So there's all that and even more. So get ready for episode five. We live in a dynamic world, which means we have to adapt our behavior to our ever-changing environment and balance our expectations with the reality we experience. When events are surprising, it means that there was a difference between what we expected to happen and what actually happened. This is referred to as prediction error in the neuroscience community. Prediction error drives learning and updating what we know about the world. A key brain mechanism that underlies this learning is dopamine signaling. Dopamine is a chemical in the brain called a neurotransmitter that has traditionally been linked to pleasure or the expectation of upcoming reward. In a sense, dopamine firing signals upcoming reward. My guest today is master's researcher Alexandra Yusupchuk. My guest today, Alexandra, has co-authored several papers in high-impact journals, including Oxford Academic and a recent 2020 article in Nature Neuroscience. So far, she has used a combination of optogenetics, which is the manipulation of genes using light, and machine learning algorithms in her lab to define dopamine as a teaching signal. In other words, dopamine neurons that fire alone, without a reward or surprise, can support learning. However, it can be argued that dopamine firing itself is innately rewarding. Alexandra is currently investigating whether dopamine supports learning because it is innately rewarding, or if it acts as a more general teaching signal. Her future research interests are model-based learning, based on planning, and model-free learning, based on trial and error, and how deficits in these processes may contribute to the field of psychopathology. So, without further ado, let me bring to your attention my guest today, Alexander Yusupchuk. Alexander, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. No Thanks problem. for the great introduction, too. Oh, it was, it, was, it was pretty much written by you directly. Just made a couple of edits there. So, very excited to have you on. Uh, guest number five. Uh, five is always, always the best. You know, it's a great number. We've worked through all the kinks in the first four, and uh, now we're going to be blasting <laughs> through it. So in this introduction, I definitely mentioned a lot of words that some of our listeners might not be totally familiar with. Tried to do my best to explain those. We got optogenetics and machine learning and dopamine signaling and prediction error. So I really want to take the next little while to basically break down these terms, not in any particular order, but to really just build a solid picture of what exactly it is that you do on a daily basis. 
Ah, okay, sure, so sure. I could, I guess, boil that down into a into a question instead of just leaving that completely open. Um, so we first spoke about this thing called prediction error, which is based on surprise. I think everybody knows what surprise is. We've all experienced that. So could you describe maybe what's happening in the brain when we, or as you study rats, are surprised? Oh, um, a tremendous amount is happening in the brain. I mean, I'm very much only focused on dopamine. So I'll describe that a bit more, I guess, in detail. Um, so what happens is when, when rats are first met with the unexpected outcome. So suddenly you're walking on the street and you find $50. Nice. You're, gonna have, <laughs> you're gonna have a dopamine spike. In rats, we use sugar. So they suddenly get a sucrose pellet reward. So that generates a dopamine spike. Um, what happens is if there's something that cues this to happening, so let's say a light precedes the reward, over time, the dopamine spike will backpropagate and it will happen at the time of the cue instead of at the time of the reward. So using the example where you're on the street and you find $50, if you, know, you always find $50 at a stop sign or a particular tree, then that cue, the dopamine is gonna fire when you see the tree or the stop sign instead of when you get the $50. Whether or not there is that reward at all. Yes. So when I pass by that tree, I'm going to get that dopamine spike uh, in anticipation basically. Yeah, exactly. So would you call that associative learning? Yes, definitely. Uh, dopamine is thought to be underlying associative learning in this way, for sure. Okay. Associative learning, I would just generally define as um, pairing and a cue with an outcome. Sure. Quick question. Do you own a bird? <laughs> yes. Okay. That is my cockatiel who's decided to scream. <laughs> sure, sure. Okay. I guess that's something that the listeners should know right away. Um, there is no strangling happening over Zoom right now. There's a no. cockatiel on Alexandra's behalf. <laughs> I wasn't sure if you maybe had your own cage of rats that you're currently, you know, doing experiments with in your own apartment. Uh, Mad scientist style in the basement. Exactly. Yeah. We I haven't had to resort to that yet, but maybe if this continues. Sure. Yes. <laughs> no, uh, Alexandra is a student at Concordia University. However, she does not actually partake in any experiments on her own. Everything is totally legit. Ethics approval. Yes. We're all good. No exactly. problem. Okay. So, so this is, uh, this is, this is kind of reminiscent of like some Pavlovian stuff. Yeah, that's exactly what I study. We focus on Pavlovian learning in Dr. Yorganova's lab, although other people focus on instrumental, and that's still involved in dopamine, but that's not my area of focus. Instrumental what? Like guitar, uh, piano? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so instrumental learning would be more, you do an action to get an outcome. So you press a lever to get the sugar instead of just seeing a light or a cue. Okay. Now, just so that I'm not confused and I'm totally on board here, when you say a light, this is not, you're not talking about like, uh, like putting a light into their brain, like optogenetics. You're talking about an actual physical light cue in a cage. Yeah. Uh, a physical light cue or sound cue. I guess I should just refer to it as cue for simplicity because using sure. light as an example is confusing. No, that's okay. So a cue can be like anything. Yeah, definitely. Um, we tend, we have a tendency to separate contextual cues from discrete cues that are like a physical light or a sound happening instead of just background cues that are there during the whole session or all the time. But cues can basically be anything. Can you use like subliminal messaging as a cue for rats or does that, or do they not pick up on that? Like if you have a Coke bottle in the corner, are they going to get thirsty? Oh, interesting. I mean, if they had previously associated Coke with 
satiety or possibly. Right. I don't know too much about that, but that's an interesting sure, sure. question. No, this is good. Like I mentioned uh, off camera, off recording, I will probably just ask questions that are, that are not exactly related to uh, your specific research, just to challenge you a little bit. And just because they might pop into my head. When I had Eliza de Temple on a little while ago, uh, we were speaking about, oh, we were speaking about theory of mind. I'm curious to know, mm -hmm. this, this is a little bit off topic, but have you heard of any experiments where you have rats watching other rats engage in behaviors and see how the, the rat who's watching like their, their neurology changes based on that? Oh, for sure. There are tons of experiments on that completely out of my field, but I know for a fact that rats do learn from like they have social learning. So if one rat jumps to a light cue, then the other rat that's watching him will think, well, there's something to fear. Even if they don't experience the feared outcome, say a shock or anything themselves, they will learn to fear the same cue. Is that sort of what you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So kind of like herd, herd learning, like this, this like basal, like this basic innate ability to like learn, learn from other people in your, in your group. For sure. Rats can do that. Okay. That's good to know. Cause I mean, my, my biggest skepticism about rat research is I guess what every rat researcher is skeptical about, which is the ultimate ability to extrapolate results to the human case. Right. Right. Yes. So of course. For, for the sake of not being a broken record, although I, I probably will say this every time I have somebody on who's a rat researcher, what, what drew you to doing research on rats as opposed to humans? Uh, okay, well, I think for one thing, I really liked how you could get down and get into very technical details of what's happening in the brain, which you obviously can't do the same types of brain manipulations in humans. You have to you know, resort to, well, correlational findings in general. There are some ways of studying it causally, but it tends to be more correlational. Whereas, you know, we get to do precise manipulations and temporally, te sorry, <laughs> temporally specific manipulations and find causal links for behaviors. Yeah, but can't we use an, F an fMRI machine to do like the temporally uh, related stuff as well? Or is fMRI more spatial? I'm sure we have imaging techniques that allow us to do both in humans. Well, not quite causal, I would say. Um, fMRI techniques, you would get to, you know, have the participant do a certain task and then you can see how the brain reacts to that task. Whereas we can turn on or off dopamine cells and see how that influences the behavior on a task. Okay, I see. So, mm -hmm. There are certain things like TMS, um, transcranial, transcranial magnetic stimulation. Jinx, buy me a TMS machine. <laughs> okay, maybe one day if I could afford it. Perfect. Hopefully, I'll get a big grant in the future. <laughs> awesome. I'll hop by your lab and do some TMS. Why not? <laughs> that stuff is definitely more causal in humans. Yeah, but you can't you can't reach deeper brain structures. Okay. Right. Okay. Because Ethically, we're not allowed to probe into human brains directly. Yes. Optogenetically, for example, we cannot do that. Right. That's a pretty new technique, optogenetics. You said that you had used that specifically in your lab. That's pretty sweet. Yeah, actually, I use that for the majority of my experiments. And 
it was a little intimidating thinking about starting out on it, but it's not that bad. And actually it's super useful because you get to temporarily, temporarily control neurons down to the millisecond or less. So because neuro, neurons fire so quickly, we can have that temporal control over them. Right. So something that I do want to address uh, now that we're on the topic of neurons is the fact that uh, a lot of your research is based on dopamine, if not most of it or all of it. And from what I've learned in my previous neuroscience classes is that there are actually surprisingly few dopamine firing neurons in the brain, yet the effects are massive. How do we reconcile that? So I suppose if you're comparing the number of dopamine neurons to say GABA or glutamate, there's few. Yeah, that's true. There's a wide range of projections. A lot of the cell bodies for dopamine are in the an area called the ventral tegmental area. Mm-hmm. That is okay. a part of the reward circuit of the brain. But these project, and this is a very lower cortical area, but they project all the way to the frontal cortex and to everywhere in between. They project all over the ventral striatum and other areas of the brain. So it's it's involved in a bit of everything. I see. Okay. So even though there aren't that many, you know, cell bodies, their projections are numerous. And so they make up for it in that respect. Yes, I would say so. Okay. Quick, quick little review of glutamate and GABA. How do these differ from dopamine? Uh, So glutamate is your main excitatory transmitter. So when glutamate synapses on another neuron, it will and it releases, it can trigger other neurons around it to fire. Whereas GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter, the main one in the brain as well. And so when it synapses onto other neurons, it could slow down the firing of other neurons. Perfect. A plus. Just a little <laughs> to make sure how good your background knowledge is on this. I assume slightly better than mine, but that sounds about right. So my question then is, does dop- is, is dopamine more excitatory or more inhibitory or neither? I would say it's more on the excitatory end, but okay. probably closer to neither. It has its own set of abilities and you get, you know, glutamate and GABA neuron synapsing onto dopamine neurons. So um, dopamine itself is more involved in, I would say, well, again, I would say because this is my area of research, but there's still debates on this. Sure. Um, it's more involved in synaptic plasticity of learning based on, you know, a surprise happening or so. But a surprise will have dopamine fire. So I would say it's more on the excitatory end. Okay. No, just because from what I know, at least we do have these basic excitatory inhibitory neurotransmitters, glutamate and GABA, but stuff like, um, I know there's a term for these, like uh, serotonin and dopamine fit into the same kind of category. What's that called? Oh, now you're testing me on my three. (laughs) Hundred level knowledge. Um, You have, it's not noradrenergic. You have... It's going to come to me in two minutes, but it's because you put me on the spot right now. It is. <laughs> no, no problem. But I, I know it's also deep in the back of my mind that, that there's a specific class of neurotransmitters yeah. that they fit into. And I don't recall learning that in terms of excitatory or inhibitory. There are also different ways of classifying neurons. So I would say excitatory and inhibitory are one way of classifying it, but you could also classify it based on the molecular makeup, which is what we're talking about when we say noradrenergic versus serotonergic or whatever so okay so how would you define dopamine then in terms of that classification i guess this is is again what we're unsure about 
Yes, but it's going to come to me because I do know it. <laughs> no, no worries. I love it. That's great. Okay, so so you you like working with rats because you can get a high level of specificity and you can also manipulate what's actually happening in their brain and then test the outcome of that, which is not something yes. that you can do in humans. Um, so I, I guess maybe this is a slightly controversial question, but um, do you ever get attached emotionally to the rats that you then have to shove uh, light probes into their brains? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. Um, I would say I am pretty good at distancing myself in general from like, from these types of things, but there's definitely an emotional component to it. I mean, we're all still human as researchers. And I think it's important to have that and to have that empathy and sort of an emotional, I wouldn't say it, we try to detach ourselves from it, but there's still an emotional component towards working with the rats. And I think, um, you know, it's important to have to, to keep us, you know, taking care of them mm -hmm. as best we can. Mm -hmm. So, right. and we do, we really, they are like, none of the rats do not go through any pain, which I think is a question a lot of people who aren't in rat research are thinking. Um, when we have them in surgeries, it's similar to human surgeries where we put them under and they get painkillers afterwards to the point where, you know, of course it's going to be uncomfortable, but the painkillers stop them from being in a lot of pain mm -hmm. and on top of that they're remarkably fast healers they're healed about two days after these surgeries which you would think oh they're brain surgeries right well no they're absolutely fine and ready to go up after two days and after that whatever brain implant or manipulation we have done it's like wearing clothes it's just an extra part of them that they don't feel or they don't really notice too much so interesting I've, i never would have thought that somebody would describe brain surgery as like wearing clothing Maybe wearing a hat. <laughs> like, like wearing a, an interesting hat that's sometimes itchy, but sometimes makes light go off in your brain. That's a, <laughs> that's a fun hat. I'd like to see which stores might have it. Maybe Urban Outfitters would have something like that next season. <laughs> Maybe. That's crazy. I love it. I guess something that, that uh, can't go unaddressed, to use a double negative, is the fact that currently, for those of you who are listening in a more current age, there's this thing called covid that has swept the nation and all nations. And I'm curious to know what effect this has had on your research, given that we established a few minutes ago that you don't actually have your own rat cage in your apartment. <laughs> have you basically had to halt all of your research right now? Um, yes, definitely. I think a lot of master's students and just research students in general are in the same position. I can't, I have not been able to go into the lab, which is, it's a shame because I had one experiment left to run before potentially having a publication ready. But at the same time, it has been very necessary. And luckily, Concordia has been working with our lab and like the wonderful team, health and safety team at EHS, I've been working with our lab to reopen. So I will, it looks like I'll be able to do my research in July, given a lot of safety training and a lot of detailed protocol on disinfecting and, you know, distancing and all that. I should okay. be able to return. I assume there are obviously multiple people in your lab who will all want to be using the lab. So I, I guess there'll have to be some kind of rotation system. It's good to know that, that there actually is going to be a plan set in place uh, moving forward, not that they're just going to open your lab in July and say, go for it. Yeah, no, definitely. Concordia has been very strict on the planning, which is really great and important. And um, we have protocol for about everything to reopen. So like you said, we will be rotating because uh, we have three rooms. We're allowed three people in back in at the same time, but only one person in a room for 24 hours. So things like this and 
the person must disinfect all the surfaces with 70% ethanol before leaving and something else I have to, I'm and getting spin around three times while, while tapping their head and rubbing their stomach or something. Is it crazy? Like yeah, that? probably. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised to see that on the list. <laughs> yeah. Take pieces of bologna and put them on their face and then, and then <laughs> sing O Canada backwards. You never know what the government wants you to do for research. It's absolutely, absolutely crazy. That's true. <laughs> yeah. So I, I guess, I mean, one of the questions that, that, I, that I did want to ask was kind of the following, which is going into this master's degree, what did you think would be the highlight of it? And now that you have already been in it for about eight or nine months, what has actually been the highlight? Just to kind of contrast the low light that is COVID-19. Okay, I definitely thought the highlight, I did have some research experience um, in my undergrad and I thought the highlight would be publishing. <laughs> okay, like, so like seeing your name on a website or? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a first author on a paper yet, like mind yeah. you, but just seeing your name on a paper that you worked hard for. But actually I would say definitely the highlight is getting data and having an answer to your question at the end of a marathon long, seven, 18 day, you know, six hour a day experiment you get the data and it makes it all worth it. It's like, even if it doesn't necessarily answer everything, if it just gives you like a teaser possible mm -hmm. answer to a question and gives you more questions, it's just the most exciting thing in the world. Like I have to say it's on par with probably running a marathon. And have I'm you done that? Not yet, but I have it on my list for November. If Whoa. Again. Is there a specific marathon that's happening that you're like signing up for that might happen? I'm not, not now because like nothing is nothing happening right okay. as of now. But I'm I'm definitely working like that's I have a goal to do a marathon in November for sure if that's it opens. Awesome. Uh, even if it doesn't, you can set your own course there and we you go. can do it. Um, <laughs> for sure. You know, you can get yourself out to like the north shore of the island and you can just run along the, like the whole thing. There, there's bike paths. There's lots of stuff to do. We could chat about that yeah. later. I'm 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 totally into it. I'm I'm not a marathon runner myself, but um, anything fitness related, I want to uh, help you achieve that goal. Oh, that's cool. We can that's talk awesome. about that uh, later. Uh, what I was going to say is that I can clearly hear the excitement of you talking about getting data. And I, I'm totally on the same page <laughs> as you when it comes to that. I completed my first experiment this past fall. I, I, I didn't really have much research experience in my undergraduate. I, I did a thesis, but it was a little bit, little bit here, a little bit there. Mm -hmm. And just, just once you start to analyze your data and you can see things popping out there, like oh, mm -hmm. in, in, especially if it's if it's something that you didn't expect, it's a very very exciting feeling. So I'm glad actually that you mentioned that uh, there was a discrepancy between you know what you thought would be the the absolute highlight and what actually was. So I guess is for the listeners, if you are uh, you know currently pursuing some kind of academic career, maybe you feel the same way, maybe you feel differently. And if you haven't gotten there yet, if you're an undergraduate, maybe keep that in mind. If the ultimate goal is to publish, it's very possible that that might not actually give you the satisfaction that you're looking for. So maybe maybe uh, think more about the data and think about the excitement that lies within. Definitely, that's true. And also uh, probably the people you get to work with is pretty amazing too. Like when you work under such a high stress, high, energy high demanding environment you make great connections with people and like they really the morale and everything really can help get you through and i have to say that has to be another highlight of what i do for sure that's awesome how would you describe the general dynamic in your lab 
Well, we love to joke around a lot. <laughs> We've turned the surgery room into a karaoke bar a few times. <laughs> you know, when... <laughs> Non-alcoholic, I hope. I mean, yeah. Oh, no, no, no. Of course. Just just the karaoke part. <laughs> yeah. Nice. <laughs> and with all the sterile protocols, we're just singing while we do surgeries, basically. But I called that a karaoke bar. That's so, a free concert yeah, we'll... for the rats, but they're, but they're passed out. It's too bad they can't. Exactly. Yeah, so we'll sing and dance around the lab a lot and just like make jokes at each other. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun, for sure. I like to hear that. I think from the outside, research can sometimes seem a little too sterile and a little too uh, serious, especially when you attempt to read an academic paper. It doesn't usually seem like there's a whole lot of humor or fun injected <laughs> into it. Uh, I have personally read a handful of uh, papers by a, a handful of authors who I find are extremely adept at communicating with even just a bit of levity. Uh, but most of the time, it, it feels like it's entirely devoid of fun and excitement. And it's just cold, hard facts and theories. So the fact that behind the scenes, I know that if your name is on a paper, there was lots <laughs> of karaoke that went into that rat surgery. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a fun part. Yeah, it's true, actually. We don't, I guess, like a lot of students before they get involved in the actual research aspect, they don't see the fun to it, but it's definitely a lot of fun. Like which kind of student? You're talking like who? Let's say students taking classes before they get involved in research in their undergrad or something, you know, the whole thing, the textbooks, everything could seem very, I, I don't want to, I'll say boring. I don't want to use the term boring, but it could get, it could get like repetitive and such, but no, you could definitely have a lot of fun in research. What was your what was your favorite class in undergrad? Well, I think it had to have been the first intro to neuroscience class I took because that's when I really realized how passionate I was for this. And was that at Concordia or uh, somewhere else? Yeah, it was at Concordia. Okay. Remember who taught the class? I think it might have been Dr. Jim Faust who has left since then. Okay. Yeah. I think a part of it was he was definitely passionate to teach the class, which always helps, but just uh, everything just clicked with me. And I remember we learned such generalities and such big concepts. And I remember just wanting to know more and more about every little concept that we didn't have time to go into. So yeah. I definitely took more neuroscience classes after that. Obviously you're, you're, you're clearly quite into your research, which is super important. Um, how do you like, what's your tactic? for reading through extremely dense papers that you know, like, you know, either your supervisor said you have to read this or you know that it's by, you know, very well-known authors or it's a super important paper relevant for your research. I don't know, like, at least for myself, sometimes it just seems like such a huge task in order to read through like a, like a 35 page paper that's super, super dense. Uh, how do you, how do you go about that? Yeah, for sure. Especially the ones that are written in sort of an older style language. I find it quite hard, like quite a bit more dense to read through, but I would definitely read through it once fairly quickly and then go back and read it again while taking notes. Or I would actually take a few, jot down a few notes the first time I read it quickly and find key points in there. And then I would read it again in more detail and really take my time with it, like break it up a bit if it's a 30 pager, you know, break it up like a few, like let's say read it over the course of three nights with other easier readings. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Fair. No, I, I, I think it's important for, for people who are listening, uh, including myself as well. I'm always, always curious to know about how people go about doing research. I think everyone kind of has their own somewhat, you know, uh, tailored style of approaching things. 
in terms of how they, mm -hmm. like you're saying, interleaving more complicated with slightly easier reads. Because uh, the key really is just to keep reading. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> never stop reading. So if you can, you know, find a slightly, so the easier papers to uh, kind of splice into the reading mm -hmm. regimen, that will definitely make it uh, easier. So I, I guess that's something that I would recommend to undergraduates as well, if they are listening right now. Um, the reason why, but by the way, why I mention this is because I intend on uh, partnering to a degree with uh, the journal for undergraduate psychology. And um, so hopefully some of the listeners uh, will be right. graduates either at Concordia or elsewhere. So for them, I guess, uh, start reading now. If you're interested in yeah. a topic, I guess uh, either, yeah, you can attest to this or not, but start reading about, uh, you know, find like the biggest papers in the field, you know, with the most citations and just read about those to get a sense of what the terminology is that's being used. Like when you, obviously you have some pretty extensive background in neuroscience, like you mentioned, Alexandra, you took a bunch of courses. Do you, mm -hmm. do you still remember what it was like when you first started reading academic papers more, more frequently and you were starting to dive into the research? Like how did, how did that feel when yeah. you kind of jumped from just taking a course where things were, like you said, in generalities versus diving into like an extremely dense, detailed paper? It took a lot of time to get through the papers at first. Whenever you start reading up on a new topic, the paper, you know, a five page paper might take you all day or more because you have to go in and research certain terms and read up on, you know, the background that they're talking about that they just assume a lot of you know already. So it can take a long time for sure. And it could feel a bit overwhelming at first, but you just have to like enjoy the process. And if you like the topic, that's what matters the most. And just you know, take your time, try not to get too stressed or overwhelmed and just, yeah, like enjoy learning about it. That's pretty solid advice. If you like what you're doing, it's definitely going to seem like it's not, not even work for sure. And the process of learning and teaching yourself, I think is something that's definitely integral to a graduate degree, which is go out and read. And if you don't understand something, well, there's no class tomorrow. So you're just going to have to go Google something or read a different paper that's more foundational. And I've also, I've been in a couple of situations, I can't remember off the top of my head what the, what the words or terms were, but some things are so niche that you can't actually Google them. <laughs> yes. There's no, there's no Google <laughs> definition for like, uh, for insert crazy term here. You just need to read the paper written by the person who invented the term yeah. 40 years ago. Yeah, once you get into grad school, I think the higher, you, higher and higher you go, the less terms you can just Google. Mm -hmm. The last things you'll just get off Google. You'll have to read more and more papers to get an understanding of it. Right. What do you think about that, that reality that we face uh, as researchers and that all, all researchers face, which is that there's a point where you, like the terminology that's being used is so, is so niche that you really need to like have a direct connection to it to understand what's actually happening. Like you're saying it takes you sometimes a day to read a five-page paper, if you took if you took five well, pages to. of any other used to no no for sure, but I'm saying now like if I just mm -hmm. threw you into like some some brand new field like if I give you a paper mm -hmm. in chemistry, right? It would be impossible, right? Because right? you wouldn't be familiar with with any of the terminology. Like if you took five pages out of any book anywhere, it would not take you more than fifteen minutes to read it, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I think that is definitely a problem because we 
want these things to be accessible to, to the public and to everybody. If it's not accessible, or even just anyone, I mean, like if I can't access or understand a chemistry paper, you know, it's, and I'm an academic, and it takes me like five days to understand it, or I can't even, it's kind of a, it's definitely a shame. I think on the other hand, we study things in so much detail that we do need these this kind of language. We need these detailed niche words to describe certain things that we're studying. Um, we can't only study generalities or so, and some things will take, you know, paragraphs to explain when we could just use a word. So I think in research, to an extent, it's necessary, but also we need to learn or we need to continue to be able to communicate these things to a wider audience, like your book, like your podcast is trying to do. Or <laughs> That's what we're trying to do. I hope that we're, we're succeeding. But yeah, that's the idea. Obviously, we can't get into the same detail as a as a research paper. Not that that's the goal at all. And there is a time and a place for everything. We're not going to sit here and I'm not going to ask you about the, the precise procedure and the materials list and the number of participants and what they were being, you know, paid mm -hmm. in terms of credit or money. These are these are details that you would get in a paper. This is obviously more general. But an idea that just came to mind, like, what would you think about implementing this, uh, not necessarily a rule, but kind of like in terms of a format for submitting a paper, that every paper includes a glossary of like the five or 10 terms that come up that are slightly more niche, things maybe that are not Googleable. or yeah. right? That's, that sounds like a great idea. And I think some of them do have it, if I'm not mistaken. I think I've seen it before, but it's mm -hmm. not very common just across Definitely the board the doing norm. that. Yeah, doing that across the board would be super helpful for sure. And it also helps because even one word, let's say prediction error, one researcher might define it slightly different than another. And it would be great to have the exact operational definition that is used in the research in the glossary. That's actually so. a really great point. I'm writing that down by the way. That's, that's, that's really, really <laughs> defined differently cool. for different researchers, for sure. This is something to think about, I think, because every day you could say that they're, you know, we, we are the next generation of researchers, right? Or there's a new generation of, of researchers every, every year that are graduating, starting grad school, PhDs, mm -hmm. becoming professors. And it's basically up to everybody who's, who's newly, uh, you know, shot into this, into this career path to think maybe a little bit differently about how it's going to evolve. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Here's a question for you. Have you ever read a paper that was in like the, written in like the 70s? Uh, yeah, definitely. 60s sure. even. 60s. Okay. Approximately how many references were at the end of those papers? I would say probably about 10, 15. Yeah, 10, 10, 10 15. I've, I've read papers from the 70s that have like two references. <laughs> if they're like really, really new fields, for, for example, mm -hmm. right? That's true. But now, like we're, I mean, I'm, I'm in the field of psycholinguistics and you're in neuroscience and you're looking at psychopathology and dopamine. These are fields that have been around for a few decades at least. So there's already a lot of research that's built up. And if you look at reference lists at the end of papers, they're massive. Mm -hmm. Like it's kind of this like never ending game of if you want to actually read about all the papers that were cited in a given paper, you'll never even get to your second paper that you wanted to read. You're just going to get stuck right. in the rabbit hole of going backwards. Yeah, right. We can never catch up at this point. But I mean, the same can be said for other fields like that are, let's say, like mathematics or chemistry. I'm sure they have longer, far, further back rabbit holes that you can't, you'll never be able to read everything. Absolutely. Sure. That's a great point, too. If there was one paper that you've read 
uh, I guess maybe even since your undergrad in your field that you read this and you were like, oh my God, this is like, this is it. This is my favorite paper. I'm going to put this in a special folder. I'm going to duplicate it. I'm going to print it out, put it on my walls. I'm going to reread it every three weeks. Is there a paper that, that you could think of that you enjoyed so much that it's just, it's just a beautiful piece of academic work that you cherish? Oh my gosh. Well, I would have to say Rasquarla and Wagner, um, they had the most foundational theory of learning and associative learning. So, and they started, they um, used, they're, they're the ones that first developed like the prediction error, formal prediction error equation that you could map learning onto. So which prediction error and these negatively accelerated curves um, that you see in mathematics, well, they, they've existed for a long time, but I think Briscoe and Wagner were the ones that formally put it on and mapped it out to learning. And it was just, it's just such a beautiful, cohesive paper that just everything seems to fit together. And you could, you know, think about it in aspects of everything you learn in your day-to-day -day life. So it's really- You're busy it's, talking about a curve that plateaus. So like, right. so learning happens, happens rapidly at the beginning and then tapers off. Right. Yeah, exactly. So they found that pattern. What were they doing in that paper specifically? What was their experiment? Um, well, they did a few, they did quite a few experiments to mm -hmm. show different aspects of this, but um, just in general, you could map it onto classical conditioning, then extinction. So you, as um as you're pairing a cue with a reward for the first time, a light that comes on, you don't know that it means the reward. So it's very, very surprising and you're going to learn a lot about it. But as it comes on more and more and it's associated to the reward, you start to learn less and less because you reach that plateau where you realize, okay, this cue fully predicts the reward. So you don't need to learn about it anymore. And then during extinction, when you remove the outcome and you only present the cue alone, after learning that it was associated to reward, we also see um, that it's, it follows by a prediction error where you start, I can't, it's true, people can't see me, I'm using all these hand motions. <laughs> so again, you start learning rap rapidly, learning that, oh, suddenly I'm not getting the outcome I expected. And then over time, again, you come to expect, okay, well, the cue now no longer signals reward. Mm -hmm. And this brings us all back to the $50 bill. Right. <laughs> Good. It's, right? Full circle. It's amazing. So, so this was Rascorla and Wagner. Yeah. 1972. 1972. Okay. I feel like the 70s uh, yeah. were a great time for research. Wasn't it? I'm sure we're going to hit another one of those decades. Yeah. Like in, in my field, uh, two authors, Taft and Forster, in 1975, they came up with what's called the prefix stripping hypothesis. For the listeners, um, my research is in psycholinguistics, and specifically, I'm focusing on morphology and the structure inside of complex words. And so Taft and Forster in 1975, just a few years after Rascola and Wagner came up with their prediction error equation. <laughs> what do you he's, know? He's, uh, I, it's definitely not even remotely related, but hey, lots of fun stuff <laughs> is happening in a close period of time. These guys were basically hypothesizing that when we read from, right to, from left to right, sorry, um, when we encounter what looks like a prefix, we're going to actually strip it off and we're going to process the rest of the word independently and reattach that prefix afterwards. And that's how we're going to build the meaning of the whole word. So something like unhappy, right? We will strip off un, we'll see happy, and then we will reattach un and we'll negate happiness. Right, that's pretty interesting. So 
that was 1975. It's been uh, what, uh, mm-hmm. 45 years, you know? That's before we were all born. Most of our listeners probably were not born yet. I, I don't know if this is going to hit the, uh, the golden agers or the baby boomers. <laughs> but if you're listening, thanks for sticking around. And uh, <laughs> I guess you were, you were maybe just a teenager when Taft and Forster and Rescorla and Wagner were doing what they do best. Yeah, that's crazy to think about, isn't it? Yeah. Every field, every field, I mean, every field at every point in time is coming up with groundbreaking research. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, uh, it's easy to forget when you get fully immersed in your own field that, um, you know, every, like, you're, you're only really focusing on, on dopamine, right, within mm-hmm. your field and everything else literally everything else but you're looking at is existing all at the same time and lots of people are doing groundbreaking research right i mean maybe not right now but like about 12 weeks ago uh people were doing lots of lots of crazy things what's the craziest what's the craziest finding that you've ever read about in a paper before that was like totally counter to what you thought would be the case like something where you thought oh my god that's interesting because it's not intuitive well i guess this would probably go back to when i first learned that dopamine was not innately rewarding because it's very easy and intuitive to think of it that way oh when your dopamine fires you feel good it's pleasure but and that's something that i thought about before my neuroscience background for sure but actually it's been quite some time that we've known that that's not necessarily the case. It's more likely not the case. Of course, as a scientist, I will never say never. Mm-hmm. Please <laughs> but, do not. Uh, yeah. Don't want to make but it's definitely points. less likely to be innately rewarding than it is more of a general teaching signal or something else. Like I mentioned in the introduction, though, we, I guess this was a question that you said is, is still somewhat open. So you clearly are leaning towards the side of it not necessarily being rewarding. But what we said here, I believe I have it in front of me, it can be argued that dopamine firing itself is innately rewarding. So you're saying that that might not be the case. It's more likely not the case. So I guess one reason why people believe it is innately rewarding is because rats will choose to press a bar to self-stimulate their dopamine neurons. So they will press a bar just to stimulate dopamine. So that kind of makes, it's kind of along the lines where, well, dopamine must have some rewarding aspect to it. But actually, um, you know, there's been studies on hedonic responses where, let's say, or hedonic responses like things that feel pleasurable or good. So let's say when rats are given something that tastes good, they make faces where they like it. So they'll scrunch up their mouth and they'll move their nose a lot really quickly. Whereas when rats taste something they don't like, they'll kind of stick out their tongue and (laughs) they make a disgust face. You can look up the pictures, it's really adorable. So what we see, yeah, what we see is actually blocking dopamine or manipulating dopamine doesn't affect how much they like something, how much they like the sugar, but it affects them wanting the sugar. So if you increase dopamine, they'll want the sugar more, but their facial expressions stay the same and the intensity of their facial expressions stay the same. So then it was thought, well, dopamine might not necessarily be affecting liking or pleasure on its own, but maybe it's doing something else and it's more involved in wanting experiences. So then after, not too long after, became known from a famous paper by Wolfram Schultz 
that it could act as a prediction error signal because of what I spoke about earlier, where it fires to a surprising event, and then later it will fire to a cue that predicts that event. So then the whole teaching signal hypothesis came up. Although not everyone believes it's a teaching signal either, because, and you can stop me if I'm gonna trail off, but. No, no, please keep going. Can, <laughs> okay, so dopamine can also be a spike that happens as a consequence of learning. So maybe it's not causing you to stamp in those associations. It's not causing learning itself. Maybe it's a consequence of having learned associations and it's triggering habitual responding or a compulsive responding. And maybe you could disentangle that by devaluing uh, a rewarding outcome and seeing if the animal's behavior is flexible. So if they're not having flexible behavior, but the let's say, Okay, so I should define devaluing an outcome actually. So <laughs> before you test them, you would give them a ton of the sucrose pellets in their home cage. So they would just get as much as they want. In a sense, it's like if you really like Coca-Cola, but you're trying to stay away from it, uh, maybe it's more valuable because you haven't had it in a while. But if you have a ton of Coca-Cola, you're not going to want one again, right? Unless it's a very habitual, unflexible response, then you'll just drink the Coca-Cola. So in studies like that, um, it's possible to find out maybe if dopamine is acting as a more habitual signal. Although, as I said earlier, our lab had, or as you had mentioned in the introduction, our lab had shown that dopamine by itself can be linked to more learning. So you don't necessarily need an outcome to be there. You just have dopamine firing to a cue that used to precede an outcome. So now we don't have the outcome anymore then we can attach that cue to another cue. So we'll present a cue, then the cue that was conditioned. transfer it. Yeah, and then that oh, dope. Okay. And so what happens is the cue that was already conditioned, that was already associated to the reward, that is having the dopamine spike. So what we do with optogenetics is we inhibited the spike of dopamine. So we stopped that dopamine from happening. And now there would be no transfer to the next cue. So now that cue can no longer support learning. So in a sense, that means that dopamine is necessary for some for higher order learning or for you to learn that a cue predicts another cue that predicts reward, if that makes sense. You might have lost a few people on that last part. Okay. <laughs> um, but the idea that you can transfer the reward from the specific rewarding item to a cue and then from mm -hmm. that cue to another cue. Is kind yes, of that's, it. Uh, that's exactly it. And so I'm curious to know how far you can actually take that. How, right? Because what you were saying before is you have this, this curve that decays, right? Mm -hmm. So how, like, how many times can you transfer the cue before the curve? And I assume there's some decay that happens within the transfer as well. I so guess. That's, actually, yeah, sorry, that's a really excellent point and question. And that's something that is definitely, um, we use our experimental design to address those different questions. So what happens is if you present it too many times, this new cue that you're trying to transfer to becomes a, what's called a conditioned inhibitor. So now they're gonna learn that maybe this new cue is why I'm not getting the outcome anymore. Because- Because you start to have the decay when you start introducing that second cue. Right, exactly. So oh, we could, okay. So what happens is you have to only present it a few times, which is sufficient for learning. You can't present it too many times for too long of a period, or it, we see this extinction effect. Do we know of any mechanism that can inhibit the decay of that curve we're talking about? Yeah, so there's definitely 
a lot of study on this and there's many different ways to to uh, impair extinction and i think what might be most interesting and relevant to uh, your audience is that it, it's really applicable to um, exposure therapy so what happens is in in the in the lab we could change the context during extinction and when we bring the rat back the rat acts as though they didn't learn the extinction so if they're trained in a red room that a light is associated to a, a feared stimulus like a small foot shock then when we move them into extinction in a blue room or a different context room and we train them with the light without the shock we bring them back to the red room they act as if the light is still associated to the shock um, so that means it's kind of applicable to exposure therapy where if you bring the person outside of the area that they did the exposure therapy, it might not necessarily generalize as well. So the fear might come back. Uh, okay. Mm -hmm. So and there are lots of context, things like this. There's still that context dependent relationship you have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, extinction is definitely context dependent. Interesting. That makes me think of, of this movie that I just watched. Have you heard of the movie Us? Uh, no. By I'm Jordan Peele. Did you hear about the movie Get Out? Heard of it. Haven't Anyways, watched it. I'm not a movie buff. Both these movies were by Jordan Peele. And uh, in the movie Us, not to give anything away, there's a family on a beach and the mom doesn't really want to be on this beach because as a child, she had an experience that was very negative. And so specifically mm -hmm. go, going back to this beach was always, a, was always a negative experience. So that might be an experience that could not necessarily be, ex that, that connection could not necessarily be extinguished. Uh, because even if she went to other beaches that were fine, every time she'd go back to that specific beach, it wouldn't, right? Like it, it wouldn't generalize. Yeah. Like that specific beach has its own essence. That's exactly it. And actually what she would want to do would be go back to that specific beach more times and right. yeah, and just have everything be okay at that beach. And that's how you, you might not learn it from other beaches because it's specific yeah. to the area that it happened. Hint, hint, and not everything was okay at the beach. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Oops. Good, good movie writing. We don't want to extinguish these behaviors. That doesn't make for a fun drama. And everything right. was okay. Behavior <laughs> I'm extinguished. I'm going to add it to my list to watch then, for sure. Sure, yeah. Uh, Get Out was definitely better than Us, in my opinion. So maybe, maybe start with, with, with Get Out, and then you can move, move towards the beach. Okay, uh, we'll do for sure. You just used a psychology example from, from Extinction Learning, so I have to watch them now. Please, yeah. It's, it's a tenuous relationship, but, but definitely go for it. <laughs> Final question before we sign off. Uh, this is a question that I have tried to ask all of my guests and it will continue with you. And this is as follows. How would you describe yourself as a person? Three words maximum. And how would you describe yourself as a student? And do those words overlap or are they different? Hmm. Okay. Maybe just one word for each. And are they the same? Uh I would say as a person, I'm quirky, ambitious, and hmm, just really think about yourself just as a person, not about not about as, as a student or as a researcher, just as a person. Okay, so maybe ambitious. Well, I still think ambitious fits. I'm definitely driven. I like to, and I'm curious. I like to do things, and I like to like. I'll definitely put my all into things when I, whenever I take something on. So. And I think that does overlap with the student. I think that's why I enjoy my master's so much and I enjoy being a research student, which a lot of people find in trouble, like they have a hard time with, but even the long hours and, you know, the high stress, I'm high energy, like it just fits with my personality for sure. Cool. High energy. I like that. That's important. 
where do you get your energy from? Are you like an introvert? Are you an extrovert? Maybe the coffee. No. <laughs> <laughs> You're a coffee introvert. Perfect. Caffeine. Uh, yeah. Introvert. Coffee introvert. I think, well, that's part of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess like, I, I like exercising that helps with energy levels. I'm just naturally been a very high energy person. So. Okay. What would you tell people who are not as high energy about how to uh, become more high energy? It might be hard as someone who's actually high energy. I'm not sure if high energy would be the, I mean, being like calm and collected and, or having a more laid back approach, those things work too. Like those, I know a lot of successful people with that. It's really about playing to your strengths, right? So, sure. I mean, yeah. And you choose, you can like kind of work with your strengths on picking what projects you want to take on and, and such. Okay. I back that too. That's perfect. Okay. So let's end on that note then. I like ending with a little bit of advice, a little bit of a self-reflection. So that's great. Maybe one of these days I will describe myself with three words that will have my <laughs> listeners continue to come back uh, for episodes to come. And maybe, just maybe, I'll do that activity for myself. So thanks again, Alexandra, for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Anywhere that we could uh, catch your research, do you want to maybe give us a couple of uh, article titles or uh, years of publication or... Oh, thank you so much for having me. First of all, this was a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, you could just search nature. Um, now I'm going to blank on paper, but I do remember the dopamine thing. It's an amine. So the the class of molecules, I think my internet cut out for a second. Uh, you just remembered it? That's amazing. It's an amine. Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, so yeah. dopamine, right? It's an it's an amine. It, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, you could just search uh, the nature 20 nature neuroscience 2020 article causal a causal link that supports dopamine transients as prediction errors, something along those lines. I'm blanking on the exact title. A causal link that supports dopamine. I'm going to look it up and I'll get the exact one. A causal link between dopamine transients and prediction error, something similar. I'm going to, okay. I'll send you the link. Cool. And obviously it'll have your name on there. So I'm sure if I look, I'm sure if I just Google your name, then your papers are going to come up and you have two or three papers out. Uh, two second, uh, two third author papers. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. But hopefully Great. one first author and that's going to happen soon. The next couple months, knock on wood. <laughs> but Hey, what you're here for is for the data. You're here for the that data. publication. Just a bonus. Exactly. Just a bonus. All right. For sure. Thanks so much for coming on. I'll see you around, Alexandra. Thanks Thank a lot. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at AbstractCast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at AbstractCast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.